So maybe you've noticed that I have a tendency to go off on tangents. So at the very get-go, I want to tell you the main message of this Bible study, just in case. And I, I want you to have this at the forefront so that everything else that is said is all filtered through this lens, everything. So this is what I want to say. Though the promise is delayed or contradicted by present circumstances, it is still certain and will come to pass. I, I've told you this story before, but I, I remember the Lord just put on my heart, Jeremiah 29:11. I have a special scripture that I pray over each one of my children. And this happens to be the scripture the Lord gave me for my oldest child. Um, my youngest child, I think he's really blessed because the Lord gave me um, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for him. My oldest son is... Um, he will surround uh, the righteous with favor as with a shield. Um, my daughter, Kelsey, is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But for my oldest, it was Jeremiah 29, 11, And I know it's a common promise. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And I would pray this over her, and I would put it Every card I sent her, every email, every text, I used to include this scripture. This is yours. And I remember she called me one day and she's like, Mom, that scripture, I'm seeing it like literally everywhere. I saw it when I went into the store and it wasn't even a Christian store, Mom. And they had it like painted on a rock, you know. And she was telling me another place she went. And all these ways that she started seeing um, this scripture and I said, honey, that's because it's yours. It's yours. It's yours. You know, take possession of it. And then she calls me. She goes, mom, it's not mine. I'm like, what? She goes, I went to a Bible study. This other girl said it was her scripture. I'm like, no, honey. We could claim all the scriptures. God means it for you in a different way than he means it for her. Same scripture, but the application is in a different place, in a different way. And I think sometimes what happens is we don't take possession of the scriptures because we don't possess them. We don't claim them as our own or because there's a delay or circumstances seem to contradict them. But they are certain. They are absolutely certain. Now, when I was a little girl, five years old, my dad accepted an invitation to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And he was one of about 10 to 15 pastors that campaigned to be the pastor of this church. Many people say, Chuck Smith established the Calvary ministry. No, he didn't. He was invited to an already established church called Calvary Chapel that happened to meet on Church Street and Walnut in Costa Mesa. It already had a building. That was like a big deal. And he was asked to come. And I'll just fill you in on a little bit extra um, there was a man in the church who was part of the board, and he had like, um, he would receive um, words from the Lord that 
you know, God would speak into him. And so as they were praying as a church over who was supposed to be their pastor, he had a word. And he said, we'll know the man who's supposed to be a pastor because he'll want to redesign our stage. I said, okay. So all these different men came in and spoke. They were great speakers. They had a great message. And then my dad comes. He's got a great message. They really like him. Who wouldn't like my dad? Seriously, I adored the man and still do. Because now he's got hair. He's like so good looking. And he's in the presence of Jesus. I don't know if you know, but Tuesday um, marked his um, home going. So it's all been really poignant to me this week. But my dad spoke. And they took him out afterwards to Bonanza Steakhouse. And as they're sitting there, my dad grabs a napkin and he pulls his pin out of his pocket. Because he always kept a pin in his pocket. And he pulls his pin out. And he goes, no, I was looking at your stage. And if you just took this wall out and you just did this, you know, here dad is preaching. And as he's preaching, he's thinking about how he could redesign the stage. That is so my father. So my father. You're pouring out your heart to him and going, I noticed that you need new brake pads. Thank you, dad. <laughs> and as he does it, the board members all look at each other and say, here's our pastor. This is the one that the Lord has anointed. Well, he came back. He was offered Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. He accepted it. We were living in Corona, and my dad had um, started a fellowship. We met at a men's club, and it was called um, Community Bible Church. And that actually was started by my father. Community, and you've all heard of it because it's no longer there. Um, but that was the one he established. And he was on the radio, and I had the best teacher I have ever had in my entire life, Mrs. Saito. She was Hawaiian. She was amazing. Uh, she happened to be the only teacher I'd known up to that time. You know, I was five. It was kindergarten. And she loved me. And my dad came home and he announced that he wanted to move from Corona, California to Costa Mesa. And everyone was for it but my mother and me. Because I was on my mom's side. And we didn't want to go. And so my dad decided to coax me into going, and he knew the greatest desire of my heart. And he said, Cheryl, if you'll go, I will build you a playhouse. (laughs) Sorry, Mom. (laughs) Then it was five to one. I wanted a playhouse more than I wanted to be called Cheryl, because they were calling me Sherry. I wanted a playhouse. You know those playhouses that had those kitchens, and you could pretend that you were an adult and that you already had kids? You could wear an apron in. You could make, like, incredible mud pies. I lived for a playhouse, the whole concept of a playhouse, my own spirit base that was mine. I didn't want a bedroom to myself. I wanted a playhouse. And when we moved, the church couldn't pay my dad enough money, so he had to get another job. And then because he had a family of six, he had to get a job on top of that. So he had no time. Then when I was 10, God began to bless Calvary Chapel exceedingly, and all these people Uh, began to come. And the next thing you knew, we had to move out of our facility, rent a facility, and we bought some property down the street on Greenville and Sunflower. And my dad got involved in a building project. And that building was not 
completed till I was 11. And then that church was too small and we had to start another building project. And they bought 11 acres here, put the Sunday school buildings in and erected a tent. And those buildings out there were the chapel stores. Those are the original buildings and the fellowship hall. In fact, the fellowship hall was going to be the meeting place, but by the time they erected it, it was too small, so we had to go with the tent. And dad was too busy. Now I'm 12 and 13. Who wants a playhouse? I want a pool. (laughs) But dad had promised. Well, I got married to Brian Broderson. We got this call down to Vista. We moved to Vista. We started the church and we took over the church in Vista. You know, it began to grow. I had uh, my first child, Kristen, my son, Char, my daughter, Kelsey, my son, Brayden. And one day my dad shows up with a borrowed truck full of lumber. And he, you know, right up into my driveway. And I said, Dad, what are you doing? And he looks at me, he said, a promise is a promise is a promise. And I'm like, and that means, he goes, I'm building a playhouse. (laughs) And oh, what a playhouse. Two story with a balcony. It was not just a playhouse. It was a fortress for my boys. It was a, um, they would jump off of it onto the trampoline and almost die. <laughs> there were battles fought. My girls were always trying to kick the boys out and make it homey. My, Kelsey made, I, I've got a video of Kelsey bringing in dirt, making mud pies, my dad trying to clean it out. And he's like, Kelsey, this is filthy. It's filthy. And she's like, Ooh. and all of a sudden she turns to him and she says, Grandpa, I love filth. And you know, it was like, that promise was definitely delayed. And I had no idea of the surety of it. I was sure he had forgotten. I had forgotten. I just thought, good old dad, he means well. And if, it, if he had been able to, he would have. But when the time came, he did. He did. You see, God makes us promises that are sure. And though they are delayed, and though present circumstances contradict, they are certain and they are sure. Let me read you this quote by George Mueller. It's from Streams in the Desert, and it's January 4th. And the reason I tell you all that is because I searched streams in the desert two times through reading every single devotional, somehow missed it. I knew it was in there. And then Brian went through streams in the desert once. He couldn't find it. And I said, Lord, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. I opened the book and boom, there it is. I love how God does that, you know, but here it is. You will never learn faith in comfortable surroundings. God gives us the promises in a quiet hour God seals our covenants with great and gracious words. Then he steps back and waits to see how much we believe. Then he lets the tempter come, and the test seems to contradict all that he has spoken. It is then that faith wins its crown. That is the time to look up through the storm and among the trembling, frightened seamen cry, I believe 
God, that it shall be even as it was told to me. Now, Abraham was given a promise. He was promised by God that a nation would come from his loins and that every place that he saw and put his foot would belong to his descendants. And he was given this when he didn't have any descendants. In Genesis 13, 14 through 16, we read, And the Lord said to Abram, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I will give it to you. God showed Abraham a glimpse of how this promise would be delayed. In Genesis chapter 15, when God is making this covenant with Abraham, he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, as descendants go, Abraham has a son, Ishmael, and God says, that's not the one. Abraham has to wait a few more years. And remember, he's already waited 50. And now he's 99 years old. And he has one son. You know, not even triplets or quadruplets. One son. That son, Isaac, has two sons. And you're like, okay, at least we're doubling our odds. And God says, only one of the sons. So now we're back to one. Through this one son, all the descendants, we've already gone through three generations and we're still at one. And from this one son, we're going to have descendants that will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Jacob had 12 sons. One of Jacob's sons was sold into slavery. But he ended up through adverse circumstances becoming the prime minister of Egypt and saving Egypt from famine and actually guiding Egypt into prosperity. Jacob's family, because of the peril of famine, had to move to Egypt. And at that time, they were 66 people in number. This number would become a multitude through adverse circumstances, not through prosperity, but through persecution and slavery. Because we're told that after Joseph, a Pharaoh rose who did not know Joseph. And because he was intimidated by the way the Israelites were growing in number, he made them slaves. And he afflicted them. He oppressed them. And then he ordered, as the pharaohs continued to progress with this emphasis on enslaving Israel, he ordered that all the male babies be slaughtered. It was at this time, into these circumstances, that Moses was born. And his mother, rather than giving him over to the will of the pharaoh, created a little ark 
made out of um, bull rushes woven, covered in pitch so it was waterproof. And she took this little boy and she put him in this ark and then covered the ark and put it into the Nile River. Well, we know the Pharaoh's daughter came and she was bathing and it could have gone either way. If the Pharaoh was loyal to her father, she would say a Hebrew child, he should be slaughtered. But instead, God moved on this woman's heart. She had compassion on Moses and she brought Moses into the Pharaoh's house where he was educated in all the ways of Egypt and yet allowed to go back to his real home and be nursed by his mother and told his true heritage. Moses no doubt felt the call of God. We're told that in Hebrews, that he esteemed the affliction of Israel greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. And at this time, he saw an Israelite and an Egyptian fighting, feeling this call, 40 years old, in his prime, still strong. He fought for the Israelite and he killed the Egyptian. The next day, as he's walking, he sees two Israelites fighting and he says to them, why are you fighting your brothers? And they looked at him and they said, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And Moses at that point knew that the fact that he had murdered an Egyptian was known and that the Pharaoh would come after him, which is exactly what happened. And Moses had to flee at 40 years old out to the wilderness and live in obscurity, hiding from Egypt, hiding from the call. 40 years, he lived in the wilderness taking care of sheep, which was considered an abomination to the Egyptians. This man who had been in the house of Pharaoh, educated, now is taking care of sheep. This would be like getting your law degree from Harvard and becoming a dog catcher in Chino. Not that being a dog catcher in Chino is bad. Just if you your expectation is a Harvard law degree and, you know, owning your own firm in New York. And he was working for his father-in-law. They weren't even his sheep. They were his father-in-law's sheep. He didn't even have his own flock of sheep. And there for 40 years, he remained until one day he saw a bush that was burning but not consumed. And he said, I'm going to turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush burns and is not consumed. And as he drew close to this bush, he heard this bush calling his name. He heard the Lord God from the midst of the, the fire calling his name, Moses, Moses. And the closer that he got, the clearer the voice became. And he heard, take off your sandals for the ground where you're standing is holy. And it, here comes the call, see? <laughs> and at that time, Moses began to hear the call of God upon his life. And he followed the leading of the Lord. But remember, Moses is 80 years old at this time. 
And Moses goes before Pharaoh, 10 different plagues to pressure Pharaoh into letting the people of Israel go, water to blood, frogs, lice, flies, all my favorites, pestilent on livestock, boils, locusts, darkness, and finally the Passover, where the children of Israel are told to put the blood of a lamb on the threshold and the posts of their door, and the angel of death will pass over. But those without faith who did not apply the blood, the firstborn of their houses was taken. At this point, Pharaoh says, go, you can leave. I want you out of here. And God takes Moses on a circuitous route, a route that leaves all of the host of Israel between these two mountains with the Red Sea in front of them. Behind them come the Egyptians burying in because Pharaoh changed his mind. And now he decides this is how he's going to get rid of all the Israelites, the threat, the intimidation. Those that are left will be brought back and put to slavery. But God comes down in a cloud, and the cloud that was covering them comes between the army of Egypt and the children of Israel. And to the army of Israel, it is confusion, and it's a barrier. But to the children of light, it is insulation. (laughs) Children of Israel, it's light and insulation. Moses is told by God to put out his rod the sea parts, and they cross. Moses takes them across the Red Sea on dry land. Just recently with these hurricanes that we've had, um, one of the hurricanes, uh, Hurricane Irma, actually uh, drove the shore out um, over a mile um, in the Caribbean, in one of the Caribbean islands. So, And not only did it drive the ocean back, it dried up the ground because of the strength of the wind. And we're told that God sent a wind that was so strong that it not only parted the sea, but it dried the ground. And it's on this dried ground that the children of Israel crossed into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Moses led them across and led them through the wilderness. There he interceded for God's people. There he gave them God's law. There he gave them the plans for the tabernacle. He gave them God's instructions. And when they came to the precipice or the edge of the promised land, Moses sent 12 men in to spy out the land. They were to say whether the land was good or bad, to give a description of the land and of the people of the land. Now, 12 spies went in. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb, gave a great report. They said, the land that the Lord is giving us is an exceedingly good land. I mean, it's better than good. Where have you heard that? Exceedingly great. Exceedingly good, right? Like the promises of God that are exceedingly great. The land was exceedingly good, beyond good, flowing with milk and honey, The produce was amazing. It had brooks of water every place. And they were so excited about the promise of God. But the 10 other spies saw only the obstacles to the promise. There are giants. 
They're fortified cities. These are well-organized armies. And their unbelief caused the people of Israel to commit mutiny against Moses. Not only were they infected with unbelief, but we're told at that time that they sought to find a new leader to take them back to Egypt. And they wanted to stone those with a good report. What a reaction. Here they are on the precipice. Well, there was a judgment for that. They were told that they could not go into the promised land. God gave them a forced U-turn back into the wilderness for 40 years until the generation of unbelievers had passed away and only the children, those who the parents had said, did you come in to kill our children? God said, no, your children are going to live and inherit the promises. It's been 40 years now. Moses has died, and the children of Israel are again at that very same spot, ready to go into the promised land. Moses has transferred already his authority to Joshua. Joshua had been among the Israelites. He is only distinguished. We only learn his name when it comes to the battle against the Amalekites. Before that, we haven't heard of him. And yet, he was one of the Israelites. He was born into slavery. He was one who saw, witnessed the ten plagues. He was one of those who crossed through the Red Sea. He lived in tents in the wilderness with the people. He thirsted at the waters of Meribah that God made sweet by the tree. He gathered every morning, except for on the Sabbath, the manna that God gave. And that is what he was sustained by for over 40 years. He drank the water that came from the rock. He was sheltered by the cloud by day and warmed and led by the pillar of fire at night. In other words, he shared in all the experience of Israel. He was one of Israel. Joshua had led the fledgling army of Israel in battle when they were attacked by the Amalekites. Joshua had accompanied with Moses to Mount Sinai and waited for Moses as he met with God. Joshua had remained at the tabernacle where God's presence hovered. And Joshua, again, had been one of the spies who had gone into the land of Cana and brought back a good report. He was one who saw the greatness of the land and was blessed by the greatness of the land and understood the goodness of God's promises and intentions. And though he had seen the giants, the fortified cities, and the people, He measured those against the promises and power of God. And he put more faith in the promises and power of God than the obstacles to those promises. 
God made it clear that Joshua would be the one who would lead the people into the long-awaited promises of God. And the people would enter if they would receive the promise, fight for the promises, and possess the promises. But all this would depend on their compliance, obedience, and cooperation with Joshua. Unless Joshua led them, they wouldn't be able to enter. And unless they followed and cooperated and obeyed, they, the forces would be too much against them. In many ways, Joshua is a typology of Jesus. God desires to bring us into all his promises. The name Jesus is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name Joshua or Yahshua. Yeshua. And the name means God is salvation. The law could never bring us into the good things that God desired to give man. And the law is represented by Moses, the lawgiver. The best efforts of Israel on their best days, they could not merit, they could not earn the promises of God. On their best days, they couldn't keep the law. They couldn't live up to the expectations. And that's why they had to keep offering sacrifices. Because they couldn't. They couldn't be obedient. They couldn't be compliant. Rebellion was born in their heart. And even 40 years of trudging through the wilderness could not get rid of the rebellion. They needed a Joshua, a Joshua who kept the law for them. The Joshua that we read about in the book of Joshua, in, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, he was among them, and yet he wholly followed the Lord. He did not become like the people. He remained pure, dedicated to God, obedient to the law. Like Joshua, God sent Jesus to keep the law for us because we couldn't. Even on our best days, we do not merit the promises of God. Even on our best days, we cannot earn the promises of God. Our best efforts fall short of such exceedingly great and divine promises. When I first married Brian, well, it was after about five years, I began to realize what an amazing package I had gotten. I have to just tell you that. I, I married an, an awesome man. I, you know, I think seeing him as a father, I was like, whoa, this guy is great. And when we moved to Vista, there were a couple women in the church that had crushes on him. And they were really good looking. And I remember, I, I was kind of a mixed up person. And I remember saying, Brian, if you would, I can pray the Lord that I can die and you can marry someone so much better who will be a better pastor's wife and be beautiful, more intellectual and all that. But I'd be like, I don't want them. I want you, okay? That's why I married you. We have kids. They want you as their mother. They share your gene pool. You know, quit going crazy on me. You know, maybe you need hormones. I don't know, but stop this. But you know, there are times that we look at the promises and we say, I don't deserve this. 
These are exceedingly great. These are beyond me. These are so good. I didn't build this. I didn't earn this. I didn't dig this well. I didn't build this house. I didn't dig this well. I didn't plant this orchard. I don't deserve this. We can't earn them. Not our best efforts. We don't deserve them on our best days. But Jesus deserves all the promises. Jesus earned all the promises. He was completely without sin. He lived the life we should have lived. And he died the death we deserved. And he merited all the promises. He earned all the promises. All those promises in the Bible that are conditional. If you will do this, then. Well, we, we miss the if factor. But Jesus fulfilled all the requirements to receive the promises of God. The law could never bring us in to the good things God intended. The law actually kept men and keeps men from the promised land. It keeps us out. It's the barrier from the promises of God. But Jesus, through his righteousness in his life, opened wide all the promises of God. As it says in 1 Corinthians one twenty. again, as we talked about last week, all the promises of God are in Christ. And they're yes, all answered, all available, and amen, or so be it, or paid in full through Jesus. We're told that Jesus experienced all that men experience, all the temptations, all the hardships. And yet, according to Hebrews 4.15, he was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he kept the law perfectly. And Jesus fought our battles and was victorious, Colossians 2, 14 through 15. And according to Hebrews 2.10, he is the captain of our salvation. He was victorious against death and sin on the cross. And Jesus causes us to possess by grace all the spiritual blessings in high places and all the promises of God found in the Bible. Jesus didn't do this by separating himself from men, but becoming one of us and living among us and experiencing all that we experience. You read in the gospel, Jesus thirsted, Jesus hungered, Jesus wept, Jesus was angry, Jesus felt, Jesus saw, Jesus lived among men. And he knows the forces against us. Jesus felt rejection beyond any rejection we will ever feel. Jesus was forsaken, not just by the disciples, but by the Father who could not look at sin so that we might never be forsaken. Jesus felt the depth of darkness that we might be in the light Jesus was disowned by his father on the cross that we might be adopted as the daughters of God. He became one of us. That all that he merited, 
all that he deserved might become ours, that he might open the doorway to us. As he says in John chapter 10, I am the door. As he said in in John 14, no man comes to the Father but by me. I'm the way in to all the promises. Our Yeshua, our Jesus, is the way into promises we did not merit, promises we did not earn. But these promises are ours simply because we believe in, follow, and obey our Jesus. Just like Israel, by following Joshua, would receive houses they didn't build, Harvest wheat and barley fields they did not sow. Gather fruit from trees they didn't plant and drink from wells they didn't dig. Through Jesus, we receive these same things. The Old Testament, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 11, paints the pictures that the New Testament explains. It's called progressive revelation. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus explains to Cleopas, And another disciple, how that the Bible from Genesis all the way through the law, the books of history, the books of poetry, and the prophets is all about him because he is the Messiah. In John 5, 39, he said to the, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you do search the scriptures for in them you think you have life, but these are they which testify of me. In Psalm 40, Jesus says by the Spirit working through the psalmist, in the volume of the book is written about me. I come to do your will. The volume of the book, it's all about Jesus. And Joshua is a typology, is a picture of how Jesus wants to bring us into all the promises. Jesus who experienced life, Jesus who earned the promises, Jesus who is righteous, brings us into all the promises of God. As we study Joshua, we will continue to see these parallels. Not only with um, Jesus, but with our own life and with our own possession of the promises. Yet, as um, you learn in semantics, there's something that's called the failure of analogy, that no analogy, no comparison is perfect, especially when you're talking about Jesus. For as great and as wonderful as the Old Testament Joshua was, we will discover that our Jesus is greater because he's greater in power. Jesus is not only our leader, but he is our great high priest. He intercedes for us before the throne of God, and he knows exactly what we need. He knows our failures and the places we're going to fail and what we need to get up, dust off, and continue into the promise. He has greater power than this Joshua, and he takes us into all the promises of God. He has already won and earned every single promise. Joshua of the Old Testament could only be in one location or another. But our Jesus is with us always and in every place and wherever we go. This Joshua 
in the book of Joshua. He's old. He's 80 years old. And at the end of Joshua, we're going to find that Joshua was old and well stricken in years. What is it to be stricken in years? But our Jesus is eternal and ageless. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And as we're told in the Bible, he does not change. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the work that Jesus has done is greater. He has not just saved us from our mortal enemies, but he has saved us from death itself. And he has conquered the power of sin. The character of Jesus is greater. He is always wise. He is always compassionate. He is always righteous. He is always strong. He is always courageous. The sacrifice of Jesus is greater. Jesus gave us his life, so there is no more need of sacrifices of lambs and goats and doves and birds and bulls. There's no more need because Jesus has been sacrificed for us. The price has been paid for our sins. Now there is no possibility of being disqualified from God's promises because Jesus has already qualified us so that all the promises are assured because we're with Jesus. They are, again, yes, and so be it to the glory of God. Jesus' leadership is greater. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake because of who he is, according to Psalm 23, because of his goodness. There are no wrong turns under his leadership. And Ephesians 2.10 tells us that he leads us into all the good works which God has already provided that we should walk in. These good works are already there. The vineyards are already there. The orchards are already there. The trees are dripping with fruit. And he leads us in to those orchards and those vineyards and those places that he's already prepared that we should walk in. We have greater promises in Jesus than even these people, these Israelites under Joshua's leadership. Second Peter 1.4, I said I might mention this every week, and I think I will, that we have these exceedingly great and precious promises. And I just went to Ephesians 1 just to, just to kind of highlight just some of the spiritual blessings. We have abundant life. We have love. We have peace. We have joy. We have strength in our weakness, acceptance, God's constant presence, God's favor, just to name a few of the greater things that we have because of Jesus, God's constant power. We're going, our destination, our objective is a greater land. Our ultimate destination is heaven. And he's already gone into the land before us, not only spied it out, but ruling over it and preparing a place for us that where he is, we might also be. And he promised in John 14, 1, when that time comes, that either we will get a personal escort by Jesus into heaven, 
or we will get a corporate one together through the rapture. Today, the promises of God are assured to you through Jesus. Jesus is our Yeshua, and he is leading us into all the promises of God. And Jesus calls you. He calls me to follow him into all these promises. And though they tarry, though they're delayed, though obstacles seem to bar the way, the way has already been opened. The stone has been rolled away. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Jesus will bring you into all God's promises at unexpected times, through unexpected means, in unexpected ways. But he will bring you into all the promises of God. The book of Joshua is a foretaste and foreshadows how we also enter in and possess the promises of God when we follow and obey the ultimate Yahshua, the ultimate salvation. Jesus, our Messiah, will bring us into all the promises of God. Let's stand up. Lord, I thank you that you are our Yeshua. You are leading each one of us. And we have a personal relationship with Yahshua. We're not looking at you from afar. We don't have to be part of the elite or the leaders of our tribes to get near you. Lord, you are with each one of us. And we thank you for that. Lord, you have planted your self in our hearts so that you might lead us, so you might guide us, so that you might remind us of all the promises of God that are ours because of you. Lord, let us not draw back through unbelief. Lord, keep us from rebelling. Keep us from um, putting more faith in the obstacles against us than in the greatness of your promises, the goodness of your promises, and the power of the one who has already dealt with our enemies to bring us into all the great things you have. So God, we pray, I pray over these precious women, speak your promises to them, speak your promises over them. And Lord, give them a revelation and a vision of their great Yahshua, the one who lives with them, who is interceding for them and who desires and promises to bring them into all the promises that you have for them. We ask this according to the only name that can take us into the promises, the name that is the door, the name that ever lives to make intercession for us, the name of Yahshua, Jesus, our great high priest, our great king, our great leader. Amen.